80% of success is showing up. You know, I do this 60 hours a week. Like I said, I do this from early morning. And even though I've done it for 41 years, I don't kick back them. So they, they've got to get out. They got to put themselves out there. All the opportunities came to me because I worked so hard on networking, the relationships, and I showed up. Welcome to MedSider, where you can learn from the brightest founders and CEOs in medical devices and health technology. Join tens of thousands of ambitious doers as we unpack the insights, tactics, and secrets behind the most successful life science startups in the world. Now, here's your host, Scott Nelson. Hey everyone, it's Scott. In this episode of MedSider, I sat down with Bill Cologne, CEO and Chairman of SinglePass, a company developing a cautery device for deep tissue biopsies. He previously headed Spinal Singularity, raising nearly $12 million for product and clinical development. Bill was also VP of R&D at DirectFlow Medical and the president of Endomed, which sold in 2005. Bill also served in multiple leadership roles at Endologics and holds 13 U.S. patents with more pending. He earned his bachelor's degree in chemical engineering from Arizona State University, where he later served as an associate faculty member and sits on the advisory committee for chemicals and materials engineering. Here are a few of the key things that we discussed in this conversation. First, your network is an extension of your company. You can leverage it at every stage from idea to development to launch and even to exit. Second, the venture studio approach has proven to be lucrative for Bill's multiple startups, maximizing the use of limited funds, effective outsourcing, and planning for an early strategic exit can be more profitable than the traditional venture model. Third, grounded in realism and continuous feedback, Bill has a systematic approach for being a serial entrepreneur, keeping risk at a minimum while utilizing capital extremely efficiently and strategically keeping the end goal in mind. Before we jump into this episode, I wanted to let you know that the latest edition of MedSider Mentors is now live. Volume 4 summarizes the key learnings from the most popular MedSider interviews over the last several months with folks like Rob Ball, CEO of Shoulder Innovations, Kate Rumrell, CEO of Ablative Solutions, Dr. Christian Ramdo, CEO of Tempa Health, and other leaders of some of the hottest startups in the space. Look, it's tough to listen or read every MedSider interview that comes out, even the best ones. But there are so many valuable lessons you can glean from the founders and CEOs that join our program. So that's why we decided to create MedSider Mentors. It's the easiest way for you to learn from the world's best medical device and health technology entrepreneurs in one central place. If you're interested in learning more, head over to medsiderradio.com forward slash mentors. Premium members get free access to all past and future volumes. And if you're not a premium member yet, you should definitely consider signing up. In addition to every volume of MedSider Mentors, you'll get full access to the entire library of interviews dating back to 2010. You'll also be able to see all of our playbooks, which are hand-picked collections of the most insightful interviews with the brightest founders and CEOs. Whether you're looking to master capital fundraising, navigate early stage development, tackle regulatory challenges, understand reimbursement, or position your venture for a meaningful exit, MedSider Playbooks have you covered. And last, considering that fundraising can be one of the most daunting tasks for any startup, we created a meticulous database of investors right at your fingertips. Explore a wealth of VC funds, private equity firms, angel groups, and more, all eager to invest in medical device and health technology startups. Access to this database is a premium member exclusive, so don't miss out. Learn more about MedSider Mentors and our premium memberships by visiting MedSiderRadio.com forward slash mentors. Again, that's MedSiderRadio.com forward slash mentors. All right, without further ado, let's jump right into the interview. All right, Bill, welcome to MedSider Radio. Appreciate you coming on, man. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate you having me. 
Yeah, ever since uh, Derek Herrera introduced us, I've been looking forward to this, uh, eventually doing an interview with you on the, on the program. So glad uh, that moment's finally here. Should be a fun conversation. So uh, with that said, I recorded um, kind of a brief bio on yourself, but it was very brief at the outset of this interview. Always like to kind of start there. Um, if you can kind of give us an elevator pitch for your professional journey leading up to, uh, you know, you're spending most of your time with Single Pass these days, probably amongst other projects. But yeah, give us a high level kind of over overview of kind of how you, how you got to this stage, uh, I guess, in your professional career. Sure. So this stage started 41 years ago when I got out of school. I have a degree in chemical engineering, but the entire 41 years has been in medical device development. And the majority of it is uh, products for vascular surgeons or interventional radiologists, interventional cardiologists. So always along that way, just doing one project or one company, then leading to the next big project. And through that comes years and years of connections. When you do anything for so long, you create a lot of relationships. If, uh, if you've done a reasonably good job, some folks like you, and then you get outreach. And so Single Pass actually came about from something that I did 15 years ago. I was in Phoenix, and a hand surgeon somehow got a hold of my name, and uh, he was very famous, very high-volume guy. He had a clever idea for this tendon retriever for doing hand surgery. So I just worked with him independently, and we created a product in a relatively short period of time, we sold to Stryker. So what comes out of that is every time any of his physician friends have a product idea, he refers them to me. So that's part of the deal flow, and, and there's others as well. So that's how the deal flow comes to me. And in parallel, one of my current partners now, Dave Chulera, I actually hired Dave out of college in 1991. Dave went more the neurovascular route. So once we separated, but basically has the exact same background as as I do, developing products for neurovascular procedures, but gets the same thing. A little over three years ago, um, November 2019, Dave said, hey, you get deal flow for peripheral vascular, I get deal flow for neurovascular. Why don't we do something together? Why don't we you know, take this deal flow and, and form companies? Right at that time, the doctor in Phoenix made an introduction to two interventional radiologists in Phoenix who had this idea for this a biopsy closure device using cautery. And that was the initiation of, of single pass. Dave and I did diligence. We said, hey, this looks like it could be a company. So we formed a, a company with the physicians as co-founders, raised the first batch of money, and now we're we believe we're close to the end, three years later. Okay. Not quite three years. Not quite three years. So yeah, relatively short timeline on, on for this yeah, particular so company. Right. So we are so April, May, June, July, August. So we are a 28-month-old company. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, definitely, definitely uh, young, uh, but you know, by, by comparison to, to, to most startups in the device space. So I'm looking at the website now, singlepass.co, uh, just as it sounds, singlepass.co. Uh, if you're listening to this and don't get a chance to to read the full uh, summary article on MedSider, but pre- let's pretend that I'm I'm in an eighth grader, like maybe freshman or something in high school. Help me understand what what's the major challenge here that you're trying to solve for with uh, with the single pass device. True. Pretty straightforward. When you have a solid organ biopsy, mostly they suspect you potentially have a malignant tumor or some type of disease. So mostly talking kidney, liver, lung, breast, prostate. In order for a doctor to get a tissue sample to do pathology, they have to poke you with a large hollow needle under ultrasound guidance or CT guidance until they reach the target area. Then they reach through that needle and grab a chunk of your tissue and rip it out. And then they pull the needle out and apply pressure and send you to 
a recovery room or a waiting room, or even sometimes they uh, even admit you to a hospital to check and make sure you haven't been bleeding internally before they send you home. So what's happened over the years, uh, the needles are small, they're relatively sharp, but there's really no way to guarantee that the patient is not bleeding internally. So there's a certain percentage of patients, impossible to predict who's going to have a problem, but they can be minor complications as you just need uh, more pressure or to stay in the hospital for a while, all the way to major complications when you require open surgery because you hemorrhage. And occasionally, rarely this happens, folks die after the biopsy procedure because they had post-biopsy bleeding that wasn't detected by the center. So there was no way right now to ensure before you leave the procedure room that you're not bleeding until this device. We simply go in after the tissue sample is removed, we cauterize the tissue with this really clever new device, and the doctors can do by ultrasound to ensure there's no bleeding before they send the patient to the recovery room and send them home. Got it. So massive market, right? Uh, considering the, the sheer number of, of biopsies that are done, at least at least in the in the U.S., I, I I assume that's that's probably the case worldwide. But thinking about like the vast sort of um, reasons why someone would 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 want a biopsy every time, like I, I'm I'm presuming like um, I'm just, I'm just kind of wa walking through like um, you know, how how this device functions and should, is there a downside to using cautery every, for every single biopsy then? No, not at all. The, okay. the tissue that's damaged for several other procedures, especially open procedures, is a, a thousand times more. So our cautery effect only goes about a half millimeter deep in the tissue. So it basically prevents bleeding if it hasn't started, or if there's bleeding has started, it will stop the bleeding. Okay. So there's zero, zero downside, you know, other than cost of the device. You know, it is additive to the procedure. But uh, other than the cost of the device, there's no downside to the patient. Got it. Got it. That makes it. It seems like it's one of those devices where it's like, how has this not been invented before, right? Kind of. I'm sure you probably maybe gotten some of that reaction before. Like, that's really clever. How? Why? Why don't we have this already? Um, so, with with that said, you mentioned the company's about not even two and a half years old. You said 28 months or so. 28 so, months. Yeah. Not even two and a half years old at the time that that we're recording this in uh, almost September of uh, of 2023. Where, where, where are you guys at in terms of like life cycle of the company, you know, development, right, clean, commercialization, et cetera? So we're close. So in early May, we actually received verbal approval for our CE mark under EUMDR. So we are really close to commercialization. Interestingly enough, though, we haven't received our CE certificates three months later, simply because they got to their summer holiday period. So uh, <laughs> we've reached out multiple times the last few weeks to the notified body. Probably any day we'll get those certs. So we'll be commercial in Europe or anywhere where they get the CE mark, uh, probably in September. For the FDA, we uh, did a de novo application thinking we had a new indication. And after a little bit of back and forth, the FDA said, hey, you know what? Just switch this to a straight I-10K submission. We're just going to say you're equivalent to other cautery devices. So there's a little bit of a process to withdraw the original application to submit a new one. Well, we're nearly complete with that, so we will be submitting our 510K within the next two weeks. So we expect to be commercial in the U.S. in January. So probably September, October, outside U.S., January in the U.S. would be full-on commercial. Okay, that's a super helpful overview. Um, and I definitely want to ask you about the EU MDR thing because that's that's unique. I mean, a lot of startups these days are not, you know, sort of 
like forgetting about Europe, right? And just going straight through the uh, kind of the DFDA pathway and whatever form that looks like, right? 510K, de novo, et cetera. So um, definitely want to circle back around to that. So that, that's super helpful. And again, for everyone listening, um, highly encourage you to check out the full summary um, uh, right up for this interview on MedSider. But if you don't get that chance, uh, singlepass.co is the website. You can go to learn, learn a little bit more about the clever device as Bill accurately described it, I think. Singlepass.co is the website. Um, and we'll, we'll certainly link, link up to it, um, in the, uh, the full summary on MedSider, uh, for sure. So with that said, let's kind of transition, um, some more functional topics, um, sort of rewind the clock, learn a little bit more about kind of may maybe recent lessons learned with, with single pass or, or just other, other kind of, uh, kind of key learnings that you've had throughout your journey and various, you know, all kinds of various startups. So, uh, let's start first with, uh, development, right? You mentioned that you're kind of a, a chemical engineer by training and spent a lot of your career at the early stage development. When you think about trying to be as capital efficient in the early days, right? Trying to get the product, some semblance of product market fit with not a great amount of money typically, you know, for, for most medtech startups. What do, you, what do you think are probably some of the, the key things that, you know, uh, first time or newer uh, device entrepreneurs need to keep in mind when they're, uh, when they're at that stage with their, their startup? You know, I think things have changed, especially with COVID, but what we decided to do, now we have what we call a venture studio, the group that I work with, we co-founded three companies in 2021, and we did them all the same. So we we always have a single employee, which is a CEO. Everything else is contracted out. We have some uh, CMO partners that we work closely with. So we do not rent buildings. We do not hire full-time employee staffs. So we'll use consulting advisors. You know, sometimes through option agreements, sometimes through reduced fees but then organizations that already exist. The, the fact that we didn't have to rent a building, build a clean room, hire full-time employees, that probably took a year off the timeline and saved millions of dollars. So we think this new business model, I think others have done it in the past, but now we apply that to every one of our startups. Hmm. So to, to get to a point where we literally, it took us 25 months from starting the company, receiving the first dollars, to getting our notified bodies, giving us verbal approval of the CE money under EUMBI, and that's super fast. And we've only done two funding rounds, and uh, we're hopefully, if uh, things go well, we can make it to the finish line without needing another one. So it is this this new model. So to be capital efficient, this, uh, you know, we don't care about um, building big organizations and you know having lots of folks working for you. All of us that are involved are working managers. We do a lot of design development, outreach, and the group that I work with, it's because we all are experienced kind of the same way, all entrepreneurial mindset. We don't really care about managing large teams. Mm -hmm. We contribute to workload. And I, I think that's what it takes to, to get there with less time and less money. So I love the model. And it's, it's, it's very similar to like, you know, how we're running Fastwave as an example, um, right? With uh, a reasonably lean internal team, but highly, you know, highly leveraging our not only our, our our CDMOs, right, but also kind of our our key functional key functions as well, right, through kind of consultant leads, if you will. But someone might say, well, look, you know, my my device, you know, it's it's more complicated, it's more sophisticated, or it's a big, it's a different market. I need to build out these big teams. Do you think almost nearly every single device startup should probably look like this in the early days? Maybe the early days. So. I'm not sure. I mean, I know my devices. I know yeah. we make, you know, we mostly make catheter-based stuff or, or implants. So maybe for the stuff we do, and I don't know about uh, more complex devices. So I, I wouldn't say every company should start like this. I mm -hmm. think we found a model that works for us. All yeah. three companies have made a lot of progress. 
Uh, they all are through their second round of funding. They're all really on very fast tracks comparatively to other startups that are similar. So we believe in the model. But again, uh, since I only kind of know my one lane, I, I really can't speak for outside. Yeah, maybe I'll speak for you then. Okay. <laughs> no, no. Joking, joking aside, I, I've, I've asked myself that question, right? And that, that, that's the reason I, I brought it up is like, regardless of the market, the device, the system that you're working on, I, I like, I, I absolutely think that this is an ideal model for med tech startups, you know? And, and at some point, don't get me wrong, like at some point, you know, when you're on to like a series B and a series C or have reached a different value inflection point for the company, certainly you're, you're going to need to probably bring in or it makes more sense to bring in kind of more internal team uh, members. If, if you want, the company's going to look a little bit different, but like, gosh, in the earliest stages, I just don't, I just, I don't know. It's hard for me to see like a, a different model being better, right? Than you know, kind of the one that, the one that you described. I mentioning this because I see so many other device startups that, that follow that more traditional path where they look to rent the building and rent the clean rooms and bring on a team of five or six people right out of the gate. It's like, why would you do that? You know what I mean? And so um, anyway, I think it's certainly, certainly well, interesting. There's that. so much downtime. I mean, we do a lot of work and then especially with supply chain issues now. So you've got your folks sitting around. So right now I don't get charged unless I have the CMO doing work for me. Yeah. If I had the full-time employees, you know, I'm paying them even while we're waiting six weeks for something to come in, you know, and that isn't the greatest. And I guess if you, start the company with the intention of growing a large organization because you want to keep it for 20 years maybe you do out of the gate have a brick and mortar you know facility and, and hire full-time employees we want to develop technology we want to get regulatory approvals and then we want to be acquired mm -hmm. so our model is so we're not going to build organizations because what we try to do uh, once you're acquired people are going to pull the product away from us anyway so it doesn't make any sense for us to be stuck with the lease and uh, know that folks, yeah, maybe they'll cash out, but they're going to lose their jobs because it's going to go to wherever the acquirer is. So we'd rather just uh, stick with this model. Yeah, no, I think it, like, it makes a lot of sense. And for those listening um, that are like, you know, having doubts around whether this works, I mean, Bill just mentioned like, this is you know, what your third or fourth company that you've kind of followed this sort of framework and seem so to be making. Three, yeah. three started in 2021 and two others underway and three others under consideration. Yeah, yeah, it definitely, definitely works. And I, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm bullish on this approach. And yes, I think, I think it's fair to say, uh, does it work for everyone? You know, may, maybe not, but I think, I think it should be the default right out of the gate, at least, yes. you know, and if, if things, if you're working on something that's just, you know, dramatically novel or different in some form or fashion, and you can't make this model work, I think obviously that's maybe a bit of a unique, unique, uh, unique situation. But like, I'm remembering a conversation I had um, on the program, gosh, it's probably been five or six years ago with Paul Buckman. Um, you, you maybe know Paul, he was early at SciMed, then he went to Boston and has done a a bunch I of know different names. I don't, don't know him personally, but I know the name. Yeah, a really, really nice guy. Uh, I, I actually got to know his, his daughter Annie fairly well when I was at um, Covidian and, and Medtronic. But um, Paul, serial entrepreneur, but he mentioned something. He's like, you know, one of the things that I see a lot of startups mistake or startups make is that um, they can be leaner, right, and they don't have to raise enough money, but look for maybe an earlier exit, right? Don't think that you have to like commercialize and drive all kinds of you know top line revenue to get a multiple because you've raised so much money. It's just a, it's, it's, it's a. It's a model that oftentimes doesn't work out in, in the best. In, in, in fact, she said, you know, instead, instead, what I'm encouraging a lot of, and this was, gosh, this was probably back in like 2017, 18, so quite a while ago. He's like, instead, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I encourage a lot of founders to think about how can I get to the next, you know, value inflection point, you know, in in, in this company with it in, in as lean a fashion as possible without, you know, diluting ourselves. And instead of, you know, getting a 200 million dollar exit, a 250 million dollar exit, no, be be fine with a 
$50 million exit, a $75 million exit, right? And if you've got less less capital in at that point, it can still be a really, really big win for, you know, all of the uh kind of the founders and you know early investors. And so I'm I'm assuming you kind of have a similar kind of thought process around how, how yeah. these how these you know could play out. Yeah, exactly. What we like to do with the, the first round of funding, we like to get to first in name. Hmm. So we believe there's a value inflection. And a lot of the seed rounds are convertible notes because it's really hard to value stuff. And once we get to person man, that'll drive value. Then we'll do a, 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 the, the first priced round. Hmm. And then with that, um, for especially class two products like single pass, the price round will get us through both regulatory approvals and a limited market release. Got so I just, single pass has raised $4 million total. Hmm. We're going to get to FDA clearance and market release in the U.S. plus a CE mark and a limited market release in the CE con- uh, countries. And we think that should get us next. That'll be the next big value inflection. And we have both regulatory approvals, and we do have some, um, I'll say, commercial feedback from some product advocates. So that's it. We don't have any um, dreams about getting a big Series B to build a sales force. So we think that will prove the value, that will eliminate the risk or reduce the risk dramatically for strategics, both regulatory approvals, some commercial uptake. And you know that you're right, the number can be low. If we get another round, yeah. And then we've got to sell for five times more just to get the same return on investment. Yeah, that framework makes it makes a ton of sense. So just if I understand it, or, or just to kind of summarize, you'll raise convertible notes, right? Uh, in terms of the kind of the, the first sort of capital into the the first significant capital of the company, convertible notes, kind of seed seed money to get mm-hmm. to first in human, uh, right? So that's your vector uh, with that initial initial cash development yep. and the fir- first in human. And then the next sort of price round, I'm not sure if you'd call that a Series A, but the next sort of price round would be to get to your your key kind of uh, regulatory milestones um, leading up to eventual commercialization, right? Right. For class two devices, we can get through regulatory approval. We do have one company that's class three device, and, and that's just to get to the IDE approved Got and it. have the pre-sub with the FDA so we know the path forward. Because we know IDE PMA takes a bunch more money probably unlikely anyone's going to acquire you, but at least we will have a well-defined path. So single pass, this was always the plan. Yeah. So it was a series A that uh, was the second one. Seed round was a million and a half. The series A was two and a half million. And hopeful if we're, uh, if we can withstand diligence that uh, maybe that'll be it. Got it. Got it. Yeah. That's uh, you, you can do You can do a lot with uh, a relatively small amount of money uh, for sure. And I think you're, you're proving that out. Um, one quick follow-up question since we're on this topic of kind of capital raising. So you mentioned your first seed money, typically convertible notes, right? That will then convert upon that first price round. Like from a process standpoint, you sort of leave, you tend to leave sort of that, that open. Are you always sort of raising over that, that period of time until you get to that price round? Or do you kind of, you know, do you intentionally try to you know, close those that round of convertible notes, so to speak, within a a, a defined time frame. We pick a closing time. Well, also, more importantly, is we we have a pretty solid budget. What will it take for us to get to first man? And we've almost always been really close to that. So mm-hmm. we'll we'll close the the seed round once we get those dollars. Got it. So okay. It may, you know, it, it may take. I think we did rolling closes. It, once we started collecting money, it took us ninety days to collect the seed round. So it was like April through July of 2021 was the seed round for, for single pass. Got it. So that was raising the first million and a half bucks. And, you know, then we sat tight until we started getting some clinical feedback. And then, then we went to, for the, the series. A. Got it. So the seed round, you know, because the convertible notes are really beneficial to investors. I mean, uh, our seed round people more than tripled their value. Mm. 
Okay, from the from the from the from the seed uh, seed stage to the the price Series A. Okay, got it. Yeah, yeah that's that's nice. I mean, nice three X on on uh, you know uh, in a you know really really short amount of time for sure. I think anyone. Uh, yeah, so that was within that. within eighteen months. They actually their value went up three point three times. In okay, months. yeah, nice. And are you giving them? Are you typically with your with your seed convertible notes? Are you typically giving them some sort of valuation discount on the first price round? Then. Yeah. So we usually well. Which typical is six percent interest, which then applies towards you know um, more equity and a twenty percent discount. Yeah, got it. That, that, that's really all I know. Is, is it's kind of in the weeds and a little bit tactical, but um, I think it's it's helpful, right, for people that are considering. You know, that that's oftentimes what I I think is the unless you have maybe a vast network like you do, like oftentimes the hardest money to raise is that seed money, right, just to get something out of the out of the starting blocks. Yeah, it's it's the highest risk. I mean, mm -hmm. we didn't have any proofs yet. We we did have one issued patent already from the clinicians. Another patent pending. They had a working prototype, but we knew it needed some design change. So it's it's super risky money. Mm -hmm. So it's you know you've got to make it appealing to investors, even though we have a large network. You still need to make it appealing. I mean, these folks are smart with how they spread their money around. So uh, they're willing to take risks very early if they think the returns can be pretty big. Hey there, it's Scott, and thanks for listening in so far. The rest of this conversation is only available via our private podcast for MedSider Premium members. If you're not a premium member yet, you should definitely consider signing up. You'll get full access to the entire library of interviews dating back to 2010. This includes conversations with experts like Renee Ryan, CEO of Cala Health, Nadeem Yared, CEO of CVRX, and so many others. As a premium member, you'll get to join live interviews with these incredible medical device and health technology entrepreneurs. In addition, you'll get a copy of every volume of MedSider Mentors at no additional cost. To learn more, head over to MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium. Again, that's MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium.